Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Spectrum Business works with small businesses nationwide, so we know that running your own business means doing it all. Marketing, sales, inventory, customer service, and more. Spectrum One for Business helps you keep it all connected for just $49.99 a month. Get fast, reliable internet, advanced Wi-Fi with security shield, and a free mobile line for one low price. Stay connected and do it all with Spectrum One for Business. Only $49.99 a month. Go to spectrum.com slash business to learn more. Restrictions apply. Services not available in all areas. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Leading with me, Rory Stewart. Me, Yannis Campbell. And welcome, Jonathan Powell, to the episode. So how did you first meet Jonathan? Tell us a bit about Jonathan. I have. No, I vividly remember Jonathan because you had been in Washington as a diplomat. You'd met Tony when he was out. You, I think, introduced him to the Clinton campaign for the first time. arranged him and Gordon Brand together to meet all the Clinton people in the beginning of 93. And then once Tony Blair had become leader, you were kind of on his radar. And I think you first of all said no. No, 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 that's not true. No, he called me after he became leader during the summer, late summer, I think it was, and said, would I come over and talk to him and be interviewed for the job of chief of staff? So I said, yes, okay. And I flew over. And then I had to fly back, but I was going to host Gordon Brown when I got back. And when I got to Heathrow, I discovered Ed Balls and Gordon Brown waiting for the plane. Uh, and I couldn't run into them because then I'd have to tell them I'd be meeting Tony Blair. So I hid and then got on the plane at the last moment. And so then your, whole, them off. your whole life has been since then dictated by Avoiding Gordon <laughs> Brown. Tony and Gordon. <laughs> but anyway, I can remember when you, when you accepted the, the job. And the thing about Jonathan Rory, he's incredibly efficient. And incredibly straight. And I think his very, very first words were something like, you're Alistair, and Tony tells me you're very important to him, and we should sit down and have proper chat. And that was the first conversation. And I was saying to Rory earlier, I don't recall ever having a crossword with you. No, I don't recall you ever having a crossword with me. But then I never gave you any reason to, so... Yeah, but I might have given you reason. Oh, you crossword from me. No, I don't, uh, that's not my thing. I no. don't do that. <laughs> but Jonathan, let's get a bit of a sense of you. So you, uh, well, give us a sense of your childhood and how you grew up and how you describe your social background and how you got into the foreign office. And I was a very conventional middle class kid. My dad was in the Air Force. I grew up on Air Force bases in Singapore and around the world and then back in the UK. I uh, went to boarding school, um, was hoping to go to LSE and do economics, but instead went to Oxford and did history. 
And then I went into journalism briefly when I left. Well, first I went on a scholarship to America, I went to Washington, to uh, Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania. And then I, um, I got a job working for Radio 4 and then I went to work for Granada with uh, in the days of Tony Wilson and got to meet the Sex Pistols and Was, all that, was sort of that as big in your life as Alistair meeting Britney? Was it was it? much more important than meeting Britney because I was much younger and much more impressionable. Uh, and Tony Wilson was God at that stage uh, in charge of Manchester and the whole Manchester music scene. Uh, but my parents didn't think that was a proper job. He didn't have a pension. And so I applied to join the Foreign Office and got a job in the Foreign Office. And so you then served in the Foreign Office from the late 1970s and had found yourself in the embassy in Washington when you first came across Tony Blair. Was that your first first time you met him? Uh, yes. No, I uh, joined the Foreign Office in 1979. Uh, and then I was posted to Washington in 1991. And actually, the interesting thing about going to Washington in 1991 was my job was to follow the opposition candidate around in the election campaign. There's been a job doing that since the Second World War. And uh, when I came in, George Bush was at 75%, George Bush the senior, after the Gulf War. Everyone assumed he was going to win. There was no chance the Democrats. The candidates running were called the Seven Doors because everyone was waiting for Mario Cuomo to come in on the Democrat side. And I had to choose who I was going to follow. And I decided to follow Bill Clinton because he'd been at my college at Oxford. And this later led to me having a reputation for being a brilliant political <laughs> prognosticator. Because so I, could, I never accused you of. No, exactly. But I was able to predict his future, but it's simply because he was the easiest person to get on the campaign bus with. And so I went on his first campaign visit to New Hampshire in 91 and a minibus. We all went around. He kept stopping at McDonald's and then stayed with him campaigning basically for a year. And the very odd thing about all this is when you were serving in the Foreign Office during the 1980s, your brother Charles was Mrs. Thatcher's foreign policy advisor. Yep. No, Charles went to work for Mrs. Thatcher number 10 in 1983. Was there the whole way through and then stayed with the first year of, Ma first, uh, year of major when he took over from Thatcher. So there you are as a permanent civil servant, increasingly drawn to the Labour Party, and your brother is absolutely the power behind the throne sitting in 10 Downing Street under Conservative Prime Ministers. He was, but he was a civil servant. He was a diplomat. He never became political. So, but he was very, very close to Thatcher. And I don't think he probably could have stayed in government after Thatcher left, well, not very long anyway. Uh, and he left soon after that. But it was an issue. I remember going for a, an interview for a job with Douglas Hurd uh, to be his private secretary. And he interviewed me and said, I don't think we can do this. It's the Powell Pole problem, because my brother called himself Charles Pole. Yeah, he couldn't he have the idea. Why did he of, call himself Pole? Um, he calls himself Pole because actually that's nearer to the correct Welsh pronunciation. It's a Welsh name, which is Aphoel. Um, what, what did your father call himself? He called himself Powell because he wanted to get it spelled properly. Uh, <laughs> a sensible way to do it. And then another brother, uh, Chris, was uh, probably involved in Labour Party before you. In oh, the, long before me. He, no, he, he was, was in the advertising game. And, he did the shadow agency hmm. uh, for Neil Kinnock all the way through. Yeah. Yes, no, he, he'd always be my sort of role model. That's why I wanted to go to LSE and do economics because Chris was... Uh, and he was probably the most political of the family, would um, you say? Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. Because you're not the most political person in the world, are you? Well, it depends what you're measuring it by, Alistair. By your standard, no, I'm sort of pretty weak sort of liquor, but um, I'm definitely not a Tory. <laughs> and, and Jonathan, something that Tony Blair spotted in you brought you in to be chief of staff, and you remained all the way through. I think you're probably the only chief of staff who's done a full 10-year prime ministerial term, I guess. But you're quite different to the rest of them. I mean, we've I obviously spent a lot of time with Alistair, spend quite a lot of time with David Miliband, see a little bit of Tony Blair. Um, they're all sort of slightly sort of overly smooth extroverts. You, you don't come across like that. You seem to be a slightly different 
personality type. Is that right? Oh, I'm definitely different. That's actually why number 10 under us worked and why it doesn't work under quite a lot of other people is that we were very complementary people. I didn't want to do Alice's job. Alice had no interest in my job. No, neither of us wanted to do Angie's job. So we were very different sorts of personalities, actually. And that's why I think it worked. And how would you define your own personality? Well, I think what Tony said about me was that uh, I w- what he liked about me was that I was provincial. I wasn't a Londoner. I was someone who came from the provinces, like him. And so I didn't have a Londoner's natural sort of feeling they should be governing. And then he called me Essence of New Labour, which I think is probably about right. That Because Alistair is much more old Labour. That's why he could do something like work with Gordon Brown afterwards. Whereas I was all New Labour. And that's, that's all I just reference. There won't be the last. <laughs> <laughs> So give, give us a, just, just to develop that, because as can he I, says... Can I just yeah, say yeah, the yeah, right yeah, thing, Jonathan? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I do find this very, very strange. I'm sitting here telling you what I, what I think about your skill. I think Jonathan has an incredible calm and has a, a level personality. And I, I also think you, you don't take things personally, either for yourself or for other people. So when things were going badly for any of us, but especially if it was for, for Tony, you always managed to keep kind of very, very level about it. So, so within the operation, there was very little panic. Don used to think I actually relished when he had latest crisis. He said he could see me coming down the corridor about to tell him some ghastly thing that had happened. Peter Mandelson was going to have to resign or whatever it was. And he said there was always a grin on my face and he believed that I actually enjoyed having these crises. Maybe there's something to that. Is, is that true? You're someone who quite like you run towards I quite crisis? Like the, yeah, I quite like the adrenaline rush of having at least five or six things going on at once. So yes, I think that's probably a personality type. So instead of stressing you out, you quite sort of relish the whole thing? Yeah, as long as it stays about five or six a strange thing happens to your mind actually doing that job. I think I have the world record of being chief of staff in a democracy because going through from when I started for Tony till the end, certainly by comparison with the uh, United States where they really never last over four years and rarely over two years. And that is that your mind grows so you can deal with five or six really big things at once. And what, what, but you lo- what you lose is the forward and backward bit. So you lose your memory before that. It's like stretch- stretching your muscles in a particular way. And I think that's what happened to me. G- give me a concrete example of Five or six crises and losing the back memory. For example, coming over here to Northern Ireland and trying to negotiate while knowing what's going on in Iraq, trying to get back before the war starts when the plane being late and I'm not going to get in on time, trying at the same time to deal with a minister resigning somewhere else. So you've got all these things going on at once. And give us an example of losing the back bit. I can't ever remember anyone's name um, when I meet them, even though I've met them 15 times. So you sort of, you lose the, you lose that sort of memory. So I used to have a diary because anyway, I could actually remember anything as I wrote it down. Partly because you're so much in the present moment of the crisis, you don't actually have the reflection time to to ponder memories, think about the past. Yeah, I think that's actually also a danger. You correctly point that out. There's always a danger that if you, uh, uh, if you don't have time to really consider things, if you're operating on five or six things at once, I always remember I have an ancestor, a very tenuously connected ancestor, uh, who was one of the four knights who murdered Thomas a Becket. And I always thought of my job is don't do that. If Tony says, go and execute the Archbishop of Canterbury, think twice before you he, do he it. Never, he never did that. He never mentioned that. And no. sort of went down in family history. That was a bad move. Not, not Didn't to be work well for his career. He, he died in Jerusalem and was buried under the Aqsa Mosque. Yeah, yeah. No, this is very bad. No, I just, just going to bring an answer. But my last, last question is, it does sound pretty horrifying doing 10 years of that degree of crisis management. Did you ever feel yourself getting close to breakdown, close to collapse, and in retrospect, looking back? Uh, no, I don't think it was 13 years. You count the opposition too, because it's all the way through. In fact, a number of friends of mine, I had a friend who had been chief of staff to Vakov Havel. He said, what you need to do as I approach the end of this period, knowing I was going uh, in 2017, you need to go and see a psychiatrist because the, the down from this is going to be terrible. You're going to crash and you're going to be in awful shape. And 
I didn't go to a psychiatrist and it, it didn't happen like that at all. I, um, I woke up the next morning to the news that someone had tried to bomb central London. And I thought, why has no one called me? And I thought, I don't have to worry. It's not my problem. And it was a blessed relief rather than the other. So I didn't have a crash and I didn't have a crash afterwards. So I was very lucky from that point of view. I think you were the only one of us who stayed the whole way through to the end. Uh, I think Kate Garvey Kate was Garvey. there the whole way through. Liz Lloyd? Uh, she didn't last the whole way through, I don't think. So, and, and, and when you, so we're always talking about crisis, but actually we didn't, things were steady a lot of the time. We didn't have that many full-blown crises. What's your sense though of, of what Tony brought as a leader to the team that he built and what his principles for building that team were? Well, again, I think it's complementarity. What Tony had was a remarkable vision and people sort of play down the vision thing, but actually it's crucially important for a mm. politician as, as George Bush Sr. revealed in the end, not having the vision thing mm. was his downfall. Um, and he didn't try and do the rest. In other words, he had this vision, uh, but he didn't try and be the day-to-day tactician. You know, people like uh, Peter would be the strategist. Gordon Brown, I always thought, was the sort of day-to-day tactician, and you were the brilliant communicator. So he had a team of people who complemented his skills rather than trying to do everything. And you quite often find with prime ministers, a nice prime minister like John Major, he tried to do everything, and that mm. doesn't work. You've got mm. to actually work out what your role is as leader and what the role of others is. So you and I had this ridiculous row that, Proceeders into Downing Street because the Queen had to pass some order in council that gave us the right to instruct civil servants. Do you think that actually made any practical difference at all? And secondly, what is your assessment looking back of your and our relationship with the civil service, how that worked, where it worked well, where it didn't work well? Um, Ron Butler has subsequently admitted, who was the uh, cabinet secretary at the time, that this was a mistake. They never needed to have this order in council. He blamed it on his civil servants in the hmm. ethics part that they'd been too tidy-minded about it. There was no need. And I always pointed out to them there was no need because previous uh, political appointees um, in John Major's office, uh, Sarah Hogg, for example, had civil servants in her team and managed them and told them what to do. There was no reason. There was no, nothing had changed. Uh, but it made it into a symbol, which was a real problem, I think, because mm. it then led to this notion there were millions of special advisors knocking around number 10. But if you think about it now, we had a tiny number of special advisors by comparison with the number in government at the moment. Yeah. So it's quite different from that point of view. I think when we started in government, we had a problem integrating into the civil service properly. I remember Tony complaining to me that the government machine felt like a Rolls Royce parked just outside Dining Street and he was never allowed to have the keys. <laughs> and there was some element to that. And we, I certainly managed to rub up the wrong way with Richard Wilson, the second cabinet secretary after Robin left. And we had trouble integrating the government machine properly. But I think after about six months or a year, we finally worked out how to do that. And on the whole, the civil servants enjoyed that. They certainly uh, managed the um, transition uh, I think what Robin Butler was very keen to do was to stay on and be the person after that long period of Tory rule to manage transition to a Labour government. And he did it very well. And so did the civil service as a whole. They were keen to have people who were going to be activists coming in, a new fresh broom, fresh ideas. And they liked that. Give us a sense of Richard Wilson. Richard uh, was Robin's choice. I can't remember the process we went through to appoint him now. He was very keen to help. And he had a, a vision in his mind of what the cabinet secretary should be. He'd been uh, working in Mrs. Thatcher's number 10. He'd worked in the cabinet office in the domestic secretariat. And he had a vision that she would pass all the problems over to the cabinet office and they'd sort them out. Tony Blair had this vision that he was going to be managing the civil service. What he wanted, uh, you remember the scars on my back, was his particular dig at the civil service, the same as Cameron's dig later and others. So that's very surprising because, of course, the sort of general memory, sort of folk memory of Mrs. Thatcher is somebody who was relentlessly working till three in the morning, all over the details, very bossy, 
telling people what to do. But you're actually saying that her management style from Richard Wilson's point of view was quite different to that of Tony Blair. That was his vision of it from his time in the cabinet office. It's not the vision I got from my brother working on foreign policy, who was nearly all of the work was done inside Downing Street. That was the problem, was the division between what they were doing in Downing Street, what's happening in the foreign office, for example. There was no articulation between it. So it's not, I'm not sure who was right about her, her management style, but that was his vision. So Rich Wilson's vision is that she would sort of set rough policy strategy, and then it would be left entirely to the civil service to work out the detail of implementation. Yeah, she would say, here's a problem we need to deal with. Um, I mean, not the poll tax, but something like that, and then pass it over to the cabinet officers and they would work on it. They would produce options, and then she would choose an option or something. I mean, yeah, I, I remember. Just handle it. But I mean, I agree with you. She was a, she was a great detail merchant, so it's hard to believe that really ever happened. But that was his vision of how I, this should I, work. I do slightly remember this, though, mm-hmm. as, a, as a minister mm-hmm. saying to civil servants, I want you to do this. I remember saying, you know, I want you to spend £40 million doing an analysis of the history of British development programs in Malawi. And five weeks later, they would come back with, here are four options, Minister. You know, mm-hmm. number one, do nothing. Number two, spend £10 million. And I think, what part of, I want you to do this, don't you get? So I think there is a very strong sense in the civil service that their job is to come up with the policy proposals and give the options to ministers rather than listen to a minister telling them what to do. Yeah, they, they would see their job as uh, pointing out the elephant traps to a minister. They've seen all these problems a million times before, and the minister's proposing something that's completely daft and didn't work last time. So let's give him a chance of talking himself out of the decision he's just made. Now, the trouble is it then is seen by ministers as people who are not prepared to implement anything. Uh, and ministers want things who can get things done. That's why they increasingly depend on political appointees, because they think they all get things done, even if the civil servants don't. How do you think we handled the relations with the cabinet and other departments. And you were always quite critical of Gordon Brown. That's fair enough. Um, <laughs> no, I, yes. I, I was not very close to Gordon. We fell out almost as soon as I took over as uh, Tony's chief of staff. So. And, and, and do you think that's because you took over as, because it was Tony that he didn't like as opposed to you? Well, actually, what happened was I, I had there was no money in Tony's office when I came in. I had to go and raise the money to pay the salaries in the leader of the opposition's office. And when I raised the money, Gordon summoned me over to his office uh, and said there was an agreement he would take half of everything I raised. And I burst into laughter. And after that, he, for some reason, didn't uh, seem to think I was his best friend. So the, Tony, so the Tony Gordon thing was, at its best, I think, good and positive and lots got done. At its worst, a nightmare for all of us. Um, but what generally do you think we did right and wrong in terms of managing the whole system and the whole structure of government? Well, there's a, there's a myth of cabinet government that um, people like Robin, actually, Robin Butler or, or Richard Wilson had, which was that Britain is governed by a primus inter pares and that the prime minister is just one cabinet minister. First amongst equals for the non-Latin listeners. Exactly. Um, and the, uh, the, the prime minister shouldn't be able to just have his will and have his will implemented. He should sit and discuss these policy issues at length with cabinet. The only trouble with this thing is it's not something that's ever happened. It certainly didn't happen under Mrs. Thatcher. It sometimes happened in the 1970s. Labour governments in the early 1970s, because they were so split, did have all-day ch- meetings. I challenge you a little bit on this? Because I remember talking to Ken Clark about this and him saying how very, very different it was having been in Mrs. Thatcher's cabinet and John Major's cabinet compared to David Cameron's. He said cabinet meetings used to be long, leisurely affairs. They'd spend two, three hours... Everybody got to talk. It was a full discussion. And somehow when he came back again in 2010 after you lot had been in, 
cabinet meetings had become quite short, quite cursory. They were out pretty quickly. The prime minister basically decided what to do. And certainly from Ken Clark's point of view, he really remembers the 80s and early 90s as a very different period where cabinet meetings were much longer, much more conversational. Well, two or three hours is not a very long cabinet meeting. Under Labour in the early 70s, it could last two days because they were so divided on issues. Our cabinet meetings would certainly last two or three hours. Um, sometimes they'd be shorter than that, but it wasn't uh, that kind of peremptory exercise. I mean, the one I remember best was about the dome, the Millennium Dome, where we had a long discussion of Millennium Dome. And I have to say, pretty much no one in the cabinet was in favour of the Millennium Dome. But Tony had decided we were going to do it. Maybe John Reid was. I think John Reid was. Uh, we had this, dis- had this discussion and then Tony had to leave. There was some event he couldn't get out of. He had to leave before the end of the discussion. So he left and John Prescott took over as uh, Deputy Prime Minister. He said, look, we all disagree with this, but Tony wants to do it. So that's what we're going to do. And that was the conclusion of the cabinet. So that wasn't <laughs> ideal cabinet government, I admit. But I also think a bunch of people who don't know what they're talking about discussing some issue they don't really have much to say on is not the right way to make policy. You'd be much better off having experts in the room who can talk to you about how this could work and how this couldn't work. You need to have the ministers too. But your Scottish secretary isn't necessarily going to help you if you're considering what to do uh, with some particular aspect of foreign policy. But it's, it's, I mean, it's quite a fundamental problem that a bunch of people who don't know much what they're talking about, talking about things. I mean, MPs generally don't know much about what they're talking about. And I felt this very, very deeply in the National Security Council. We'd sit around the table and with the best will in the world, compared to the US equivalents, my cabinet colleagues were not deep intra experts. I mean, I remember people asking some pretty basic questions about the difference between Sunni and Shia, and you can imagine. So there is a fundamental problem at the heart of our whole governmental system, which is our cabinet ministers are often not there for very long. They often don't have a professional background in what they're doing. And our system's amateur at the core, isn't it? Yeah, that is exactly the problem. It's the sort of leftover from imperial times, if you like, that it's the great amateurs. It's a Kipling-type approach to government. And it doesn't really work in the modern world. It's not to say that you need to have a bunch of technocrats or experts. But if you're going to have a discussion about something that is quite technical, it would be good at least to have in the room those people who understand the technicalities of it, rather than leave it to a bunch of people who uh, really are not that interested in the subject. And if they have something to say, it's been written for them by civil servants who from their department who probably don't know much about it. So yes, there are real problems. And uh, I think that applies to the National Security Council as well as the Cabinet. What did you least enjoy about working in Number 10? Well, to start with, there was a the problem of no food. If you remember, we came in, there was no cafe. There was nowhere to get anything to eat at all, which is why I lived on a diet of Mars bars for the first year uh, of, of working there. What was really good about Number 10 was the staff, the permanent staff, the people who had been there their whole lives, who opened the doors, made the tea, cleaned the rooms, looked it after things. They were fantastic. Mm-hmm. D- didn't make food. They didn't make food. Eventually they made tea. They Eventually. wouldn't make coffee either. There was a, we bought a coffee machine and brought it in, but they refused to make that modern newfangled coffee. So we had to stick to tea. But it was, yeah, they were great. Uh, the problem, the, the, the place is a completely inappropriate place to run a government from. It's absolutely ridiculous. You had John Burt working out of a broom cupboard on the third floor uh, and sort of massively overcrowded. And we had a terrible problem that the electric risers were overheating the whole time because there were too many people and the whole building was going to burst into flames. But when we tried to close it down and repair it, this was quite late on in the time in Downing Street, Gordon Brown wouldn't have it because he thought we were simply trying to keep him out of Downing Street. Uh, so we carried on working with the dangers continuing. So if anyone was sensible, they would move government out of Downing Street, somewhere like the QE2 centre, work in an open plan office and actually have the experts around them so they could call on them. QE2 Centre, what a glamorous idea. I don't think it matters what it's called, just somewhere where you could work in a modern office would be sensible if you want a modern government. Again, for for listeners who are not 
London local security centre is a, a horrifying oh, of building. So. They all know what the security the... centre is, Rory. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Alistair believes everybody's got a universal knowledge. Security centre is a horrifying sort of, is that again, it's a 1970s conference centre no, on no, the no, edge no, of Parliament much, Square. much less than that. I remember it being built. No, it's the 1980s, early 1990s, I think. Uh, and it's on the corner of Parliament Square. But what it has is great big open plan offices. Uh, we've been talking here in Northern Ireland about castle buildings and how awful that was where we negotiated. That was a 1960s building and that was awful. But the QT Centre would be Queen Elizabeth II's conference centre on the corner of Parliament Square would be absolutely ideal uh, for a government office. You wouldn't go as far as to take it out of London? No, because no. then that's the, the, again, this, this um, myth that people have been chasing since the time of Harold Wilson that we're going to move government. All that happens is people move the back office stuff up to East Kilbride or whatever it is. They're never going to move because ministers don't want to move. Ministers refuse to move. So then all the staff congregate around the minister. It's not just ministers refuse to move. Ministers have to vote. I mean, how on earth are we supposed to move? We've got to get into Parliament to vote. No, I'm, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about moving Parliament as well. I, I'm not yeah. suggesting yeah. it should happen. Yeah. I always yeah. think it's, a, it's a, again, a, a false idea that somehow you could move government somewhere else because all the interesting bits are going to stay in London and all the people want to work in the interesting bits. And of the, of the crises that we had, what do, what do you would say were the worst? <sighs> hmm. uh, well, the first was, I find, fairly scarring, which you remember was the Ecclestone uh, thing, which was just as my first daughter had been born. Uh, I was on my paternity leave, uh, which I had a day and a half. And halfway through the second day, Slacking. the Eccleston, Eccleston thing broke. And, and I again, had to come in. Remind, remind listeners of this. So Bernie Eccleston, Bernie Eccleston had given a million Formula pounds one, to the uh, yeah. impresario who'd given, in opposition, had given us a substantial sum, maybe a million, million, a million yeah. pounds, yeah. a lot of money. And then he wanted, uh, had come to see Tony and talked about changing the rules for tobacco advertising. And we got ourselves completely in a twist about it. And the actually classic example of what you need to do in those circumstances is get all of the stuff out as soon as you can. The full, disclosure, you full disclosure, as recommended by me in a note on day one, <laughs> which Tony agreed to and was then dissuaded at Canary Wharf by, by your friend Gordon as he was having lunch with Jack Chirac. Yeah. <laughs> and what was it? What, so let's just get, get into this. Good, good way of get, get both of you into the conversation. Gordon Brown isn't here, so but play devil's advocate. What was Gordon Brown's view? Why did he think it was a bad idea? What was he hoping to do by not getting all the story out initially? I think he, I think he, he, he thought it would go away, um, and these things tend not to go away. And also because it was there was lots of other stuff going on that he thought it would crowd it out. And I think he, he just had a view that it, it wouldn't be one of those scandals that took off. But I think once you're talking about a million pounds and a policy change, and to be fair to Frank Dobson, I think I'm right in saying Frank Dobson wasn't aware when he was devising the policy on tobacco sponsorship about the donation, because the donations weren't necessarily all open by that time. And then but it's interesting you start with that, because I, I, I always think foot and mouth and the fuel protests, as well as the big international ones. Oh, you always think, think bigger than me. But no, it's that first one, not least because I, I said I bought this infant daughter into Downing Street and no spare nappies, because I thought I was only going in for half an hour. And sort of 24 hours later, I left with a very smelly baby. And uh, that stayed in my mind. The, um, no, the, the, obviously, the, bigger, the fuel crisis really stays in my mind a lot. because that's so, a, Just on the baby. Who was looking after the baby for 24 hours? Well, I, I wasn't feeding her. I can't remember how uh, Sarah, my wife, must have been feeding her. So maybe I think maybe Sarah came in too, and that, but we couldn't right. leave because I was the only one who had a car yeah. or something. I can't remember what the, the answer was now. But it, it was memorable that we ended up stuck there. The fuel crisis was a very memorable one because... Uh, we, we really didn't believe it was going to happen. It's a good example of how these things can get out of hand very, very quickly. Mm. So um, this protest started. Uh, and the protest was, was that the price of fuel was going up. Yeah, there was a small number of hauliers at the start. Small number of hauliers trying to blockade the, the fuel depots because the price of fuel had gone up because we had put tax up on fuel. 
you know, as part of environmental measures and tax raising measures and what have you. And we thought that the police would easily get this under control because you wouldn't have thought a few hauliers would just be able to shut down all of the um, fuel terminals across the country. And I remember Tony went off on a regional tour and he said, if I have to come back for this, I'm going to really sack you. You just manage this and get rid of it. And so I thought, oh, it's not going to be too hard. And we talked to the police and we talked to the people who ran the fuel depots. And as uh, the clock ticked away, we had the John Prescott there. And as the clock ticked away, things got worse and worse. Uh, and the police weren't able to open up the fuel terminals. And uh, people started running out of fuel. We were actually, at the end of it, within hours of having to invoke uh, Emergency Powers Act because there was no money in the cash points. Uh, hospitals were running out of fuel and didn't have generators to, to back up. And we really thought we were in trouble. And then we managed to finally break it. At the last moment, I remember Jeremy Haywood, who was our principal private secretary at the time, and I holed up in a little room in the cabinet office, and we got in all the number twos from all the oil, oil companies. And we we're all there just working the phones until we got this thing moving. How did, you, was, how did, you, how did you break it? In the end, I think it was the Exxon uh, fuel terminal in Essex that finally uh, they managed, the, the management managed to get some trucks out. And once that I'll, started, I'll, it fell. I'll tell you the other thing that happened, though, was that the, the, the media, which had been turning it into particularly the wretched Daily Mail, promoting panic buying and rather than sort of explaining there was no need for it. And I remember Alan Milburn coming over, who was the health secretary, and saying that if this carried on like this, they wouldn't be able to run the health service. Mm. And that, once that fact was out there, the mood sort of turned. Because the oil companies up to that point had been absolutely useless. They had, uh, but the police had also been very strange about it. They could actually have easily opened mm. up these terminals if they wanted to, and they, they chose not to. And it was one time that we fell behind the Tories in the opinion polls. It happened very, very quickly. Mm. And the one thing people expect is the government can yeah. run things properly. And if you start not being able to do that... But police, they, police is a very interesting thing, isn't it? Because obviously police are vital to so much, so rawly connected to the public. And a real challenge about how much political control there should be of the police or shouldn't be. And of course, we're talking here in Belfast, where the question of how much control the politicians had over the constabulary here was a very, very raw part of the troubles through the 60s, 70s, 80s and onwards. What was your sense of the way that politicians relate to the police? How easy would it be to reform? Let's say that people felt there were some fundamental problems in the Metropolitan Police. Corruption, discrimination, sexism. How would you set about fixing that with the way our government works? It's not easy because of this uh, theory of independence of the police that we have, uh, which is not true in all countries. Um, but we want to have the police independent because we don't want them to act as instruments of government. And yet, as you say, here in Northern Ireland, they did act as instruments of, go of government by keeping, um, trying to maintain the security situation. So working very closely with the army, uh, although the police were always in, in charge, always the first uh, on a patrol, etc. So I think it is very, there is a reason that the police have not been reformed is it's really difficult to do. Firstly, the power of the Fed is very, very strong. And their power to resist change is very, very strong. And secondly, the, government... The Fed being the, the, the Fed police being union. The police federation, yeah. which is uh, a very strong trade union indeed. And most politicians don't want to take on uh, the police in those terms. So that makes it very difficult to go about reform. But then actually coming up with the right answer. Now, people are talking about breaking up the Met, but then you may end up with a really difficult problem if you have lots of different sorts of policing going on in different parts of London. And of course, so in Scotland, Scotland, they went the opposite direction. They created a single police force. They've taken away all the regional police forces. Yeah, and many uh, senior police officers will tell you, actually, it's ridiculous having the very small police services all over the UK. You should really um, amalgamate them all into one. So I don't think there's a very easy answer. If you look at the United States and other countries, they have different problems with the police, but very serious problems as well. So fuel protests, foot and mouth, similarly awful. But then on the international front, I guess 9-11, 
Well, actually, it was Kosovo. That was a proper crisis. 9-11 and then Iraq. So... Well, even before Kosovo, we had the first Iraq Sierra, war, if you yeah, remember, right. with Clinton. Where, but that wasn't a crisis. That- well, it was a crisis. It was because he chucked the inspectors out uh, and Clinton wanted to bomb uh, Iraq. We were concerned because it was the time of Monica Lewinsky, concerned exactly yeah. what the motivation was for this bombing. But we went along with it, which is why people, when they question whether we believed he had weapons of mass destruction or not, the reason we bombed him the first time in 98, along with Bill Clinton, was we believed he had weapons of mass destruction. He was hiding them yeah. by kicking out the inspectors. Now, the reason why I would, say, I, I would say that was not necessarily a crisis in the way that Iraq became a crisis subsequently is because actually that was, you know, it, it didn't convulse the government in a way that subsequently... His definition well, of a crisis is crisis something is, that's going to overwhelm the whole... So it's a political crisis rather than an international crisis. It's certainly an international crisis. And it, it was questioned at the time by people in the UK. It was not exactly um, seen as... Uh, no, but nothing. I mean, the, the, the scale of questioning and the scale of controversy surrounding what subsequently became mm-hmm. no no it wasn't that kind of controversy nor was kosovo kosovo mm. also was questioned when the bombing campaign took off and it didn't succeed you know it managed to hit the chinese embassy mm. and a bus full of um refugees, refugees and so yeah. on uh that was a real problem and then tony was pushing really hard for ground troops and eventually persuaded clinton so really that extraordinary conversation he had with clinton while clinton was on air force one and speaking to him on the phone with sandy berger the national security advisor patched in and I think the Secretary of State was also patched in, uh, and he was really part of the debate about whether you should have ground troops in Kosovo, and he managed to win the argument and uh, get them in. Although then, of course, Clinton was furious when he uh, saw the New York Times article, which he assumed you, you, Alistair, had briefed, saying that he was a wimp and Tony had to force him to uh, be a real man and send ground which troops in Kosovo. No, you didn't. Of course you didn't. But uh, he didn't believe that at the time. He was quite uh, on the angry yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When How did the New York Times get that story? I don't know. I don't know. I guess somebody has spoken to him. I don't know. So know. somebody in your team had tipped no, them off. No, it could well have been someone in Washington. I've almost yeah. certainly someone in Washington. Yeah. Who talked to them. And so, yeah. yeah. Now, Alistair raised the question of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, we've, I've interviewed Alistair about Iraq, and I've interviewed Tony Blair about Iraq. Um, and both of them are pretty clear that their views haven't dramatically changed, although Alistair's maybe a little bit more nuanced over time than... Are you, are you like them? You're very much still in the same position you were in in 2003? I'm not in the same position I was in in 2003, no. But I am still wrestling with the idea. I'm actually reading through my diaries at the moment about it because I want to try and write a book about it. Because I, what I do think is people who draw the lessons from it have drawn the wrong lessons from Iraq. I think Iraq was pretty clearly a big problem. You know, we went in, there weren't any weapons of mass destruction. It wasn't that we were lying, there just weren't any. Uh, and that was a real, a, a real problem. And what's happened in Iraq afterwards because of the failure to uh, install security after we got in there was a really big problem and then the failure and then the pulling out before we sorted out the problem between the Sunni and the Shia leaving a civil war between the two uh, effectively was also a big problem so I think there are big problems about Iraq but the lesson we seem to have learned is in Libya that we should only intervene from the air we're going to bomb but then we're not going to go on the ground and I went in as David Cameron's envoy after the war and everyone in Libya said to me why on earth did you help us by bombing from the air but you didn't actually come and help us build institutions we never had institutions why didn't you come in and do some state building here and then in Syria the lesson we drew was let's not intervene at all let's let this horrific thing happen so is Syria somehow better than Iraq after what's happened in Syria all this time? That wasn't the right answer either. So as I say, I'm wrestling what the right answer is on Iraq. Clearly what happened in Iraq is not good. The outcome is not one that one would want. But I think that people focus on the wrong issues, trying to find some sort of hidden secret agenda that pro- proves malfeasance rather than I, I, actually what the I, real I, lessons I, I, are. I'm not on the hidden secret agenda. Where I suspect I do find a big disagreement with Supporters, and I've very much changed my mind on Iraq, is 
as somebody working on the ground, I think people are very naive in their belief that they could have done it properly. So one of the great things I hear from defenders, particularly in the US, is the problem wasn't the invasion. The problem was we didn't do the post-invasion right. If only we'd built the state properly, if only we'd stayed long enough to sort out the Sunni Shia. And I guess I would say that, certainly from my perspective, working on the ground in Iraq, it seems completely implausible to me that we ever had the knowledge, the legitimacy, the power to resolve so, so Sunni Shia so conflict what's the alternative build the, the policy, state. What's the alternative to the policy as pursued by us at the time? Not to intervene. No, it- that's not a policy. Never, that's anywhere. A, so that's, you wouldn't that's a policy. That's no, not a policy. I, I, that's a decision not to do anything. Well, I'm a strong supporter of the intervention in Bosnia and Kosovo, and I'm an opponent of the intervention in Iraq. No, so what's your but policy? So what, what, but what do you do to deal with the problems that we were... Containment. That wasn't, wor- wasn't working. That's the trouble we're containing. It was, it was actually splintering at the time. We, we don't want to get drawn down that, but I think um, had we longer... I would why was it okay to strongly, intervene in Bosnia and okay to intervene in Kosovo and not okay to intervene in Iraq? And why didn't we intervene because, in Rwanda? Okay, so let, let me push back. Because mm-hmm. you're unable to distinguish the prudential from the ideological. Mm-hmm. Ought implies can. You do not have a moral obligation to do what you cannot do. The stupidity of your position is that you think it's enough to make a moral argument in Rwanda or Iraq and say that the question is, what difference is there in moral terms between Bosnia, Kosovo, and Iraq? The fundamental difference is, you couldn't do it in Iraq. And doing something that you can't do causes untold misery. And you were not focused enough on the practical. You believed, provided you were righteous, you could say stupid things like containment was fracturing, when it is entirely, to me, apparent that containment would have been infinitely preferable to what happened. Saddam Hussein did not pose an existential threat to global security, you did not need to intervene in 2003, and the world would have been better off had you not done it. I'm not making a moral difference. I'm saying, how would you uh, know in advance that you were going to be able to sort out Kosovo, that you were be able to get rid of Milosevic, that you actually haven't really sorted out Bosnia, even now. Bosnia is still a complete mess, as you know. So I'm not making the moral. In fact, one of the five tests that we drew up at the time of Kosovo, with the help of uh, Laurie Friedman, was... Exactly that. Is it practical? Can you make it work? The question then is, how do you know that until you've actually tried it? Because you don't know whether you can help rebuild something. Should we not have gone into Afghanistan for the same reason in your view? Well, I think first thing I would say is that that was a wonderful example of how calm you are. So I was getting cross and you responded in an extremely calm and measured way and you didn't get wound up at all. So I can see why you are. That's why I spend my time talking to terrorists. Very good. Very good negotiator. That was very, very (laughs) impressive. Um, uh, I think you're also right that it is extremely difficult in advance to know whether things are going to work or not. And because we don't know very much about these countries and so much uncertainty happens after we intervene. Nonetheless, I think there are things that might lead you to believe that you are less likely to face an insurgency in Bosnia or Kosovo compared to Iraq or Afghanistan. There are things that might lead you to believe that a slightly smaller country might be easier than a larger country. There might be reasons to believe that the light footprint in Afghanistan was preferable to the latest state-building project, and that probably Brahimi and, in a different way, Rumsfeld were right about Afghanistan, and Ashraf Ghani and the people who supported the surge were wrong. Um, but in the end, that's, I think, what political judgment's about. It's about deep, deep knowledge of those countries. And we ought to have been able to get to understanding that Iraqis would be grateful that we'd got rid of Saddam Hussein, but very, very rapidly would have perceived our presence as illegitimate because they would have felt they were fighting for Iraq and Islam against a foreign military occupation. 
I'm not sure about the size of countries. Think about Libya, for example. You know, we failed comprehensively in Libya, and it's still in a state of absolute crisis after the intervention. And that's quite a small country with a very small population. What I think is the case is there's a sort of cycle in this stuff. What happens is we don't intervene. So after Vietnam, the US didn't intervene anywhere. That's why it didn't intervene in Rwanda, for example, not the practicalities, because the lesson they drew from Vietnam is never intervene. And then they geared themselves up eventually to Bosnia rather late in the day to intervening, uh, and when a lot of the damage had already been done. So... And then what happens is you then overreach. So we, you know, we'd had the success in Kosovo. We'd had the success bombing Iraq. We'd had the success in Sierra Leone. We had what appeared to be a success in Afghanistan. And then we came to Iraq. So you get in the cycle. Then you over, and then you don't intervene anywhere, like in Syria, and you end up with an even worse disaster. Well, well, my, so that's that's the problem, my, I think. We need to learn. The, 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 so the, it's the, like Goldilocks. You want to have the porridge which is not too cold, not too hot. You've got to get it just right. Right back in a second. Just going to a quick break. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert. And I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure. Because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. I want to talk about what you do now, yeah. which is your charity, Intermediate. Mm-hmm. So you, you, and a lot of that based on what we did here mm-hmm. in Northern Ireland, and in particular, you sort of becoming chief negotiator and, as you say, negotiating quite a lot of the time with terrorists, and you're now doing that in different parts of the world. So what have you taken from what happened in Northern Ireland to some of the stuff that you're doing now? And tell us a little bit about what sort of parts of the world you're working in. Well, w- w- for me, Northern Ireland actually changed my life. You know, I was, as I described, a pretty conventional sort of middle class diplomat. And going into government, the thing that I did that I felt proudest of after the event, because at the time it was extremely painful, was flying over here once a week or once every other week to meet with Adams and McGuinness in safe houses and then meet with Trimble or meet with Paisley. So when I left government, that's what I wanted to do, to see if I could take some of the lessons we'd learned from Northern Ireland and apply them somewhere else. Now, Northern Ireland is completely different from these other conflicts. Mm. It really is. And the solution is very different. But it's interesting what parallels there are to how you approach these negotiations. We've been talking today, for example, here in Northern Ireland about the reason the Good Friday Agreement worked was because they were inclusive negotiations. All the previous times we tried to exclude the extremes, not just Sinn Féin, but the loyalists on the other side. That's why Sunningdale failed in 73. Anglo-Irish Agreement, just the two governments, likewise Downing Street Declaration. So what I wanted to do is try and apply those lessons. And 
Sometimes it works. I worked in Colombia for eight years with President Santos, and you came out very kindly to help with that when we had a referendum, which we managed to lose, thanks mm-hmm. to your help. But the, <laughs> the, um, uh, it was very, very satisfying to try and share the lessons. You see, Santos was very interested in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. He'd been the representative of the coffee trade in London for eight years. He'd been blown to the ground by an IRA bomb along with his ambassador outside in an out club on Piccadilly. So he wanted to know about Northern Ireland. And then we helped him draw up a strategy at the beginning of the process, learning lessons from Northern Ireland, lessons from previous negotiations, failed negotiations in uh, in, in Colombia with the, the FARC. Likewise in Mozambique with the Renamo. So I, that's what I do. I, and I, I love doing it. Although as I get older, it's more and more painful to get on more and more overnight flights. Mm. But yes. Jonathan, and one of the things that um, seems to be happening in the world of peace building is a movement against the idea of outsiders coming in. Uh, this increasing, certainly, rhetoric in the UN system around grassroots movements, civil society, Indigenous mediators, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I, I just spent two quite painful years on a, on a commission on principles of inclusive peace. And very interesting, in the whole two-year period talking about peace building, people no longer really talk about, at the moment, about peace negotiators and external actors. The entire focus now is, is on grassroots civil society actors. How do you get the balance on that? How do you think about that? Uh, it's a very interesting question how you actually get the balance right between um, – up-down approach to negotiations and the down-up approach. So in Colombia at the moment, for example, under President, uh, the new president, um, Petro, who's come in, he's trying to do both things at once. So he's trying to use civil society to negotiate with the criminal gangs in Colombia, at the same time negotiate top-down with the LN, the Marxist guerrillas. So trying to combine these two things is something that hasn't really been tried before. It probably should have been tried properly in Afghanistan, where you should have tried to build from the bottom up, as well as trying to negotiate from the top. And it's also true that the role of UN as mediator is basically died off. The UN doesn't isn't really able to work as a mediator anywhere now, apart from in completely failed states where they can go in. So I think it's not about mediators. What we do is we try and help the different sides. So we'll go in and help a president or help a guerrilla leader to try and make the negotiation work. So we try not to appear. We try to be below the radar. So you feel the UN's been marginalised. Why has the UN been marginalised? Why are they not central? It's, it's interesting because the UN didn't have a role during the Cold War in many of these cases because it was a zero-sum game. Either the Soviet Union was going to win or the United States was going to win. It briefly got a role when the Cold War came to an end. Uh, so it played that role in Angola, in Namibia, uh, in uh, El Salvador, for example. The UN went in, uh, Guatemala was the mediator. Uh, now governments don't, won't tolerate the UN trying to work on internal conflicts, external conflicts between countries, maybe. Uh, although actually almost never there either. But in internal conflicts, they're not going to. So unless it's a failed state, um, someone like, like South Sudan was, for example, you're not going to get that kind of external media. Just before I go down, so it strikes me that Northern Ireland is interesting from that point of view because the British government was comfortable with the US getting quite involved in what Britain might have thought was an internal issue. Not to start with. We were incredibly resistant to any international interference in Northern Ireland for 40 odd years. Well, actually, you can take it back to the, the, the Treaty of Versailles, where um, Lloyd George got very worried that uh, Woodrow Wilson was going to insist on self-determination for Ireland and uh, wanted to avoid that at all costs. But we absolutely ruled out any, and there were lots of attempts at international mediation uh, right through to the John Major period. Then we finally very carefully introduced an Australian a mediator, Sinian Stephen, who had been the governor general. Uh, that didn't work out so well. And then they brought in um, George Mitchell. Bringing in George Mitchell was not that simple. At first, he was not accepted by the unionists as mm. even-handed. It took real effort to persuade them that he was. And because of his nature and, and because of who he was, he was able to do that. And as he was seen as a, a fair mediator, as we had made clear uh, under the Tory government before, under John Major, that we did not have a selfish strategic or economic interest in Northern Ireland, 
we didn't mind as, as long as both parties could agree. So having someone from outside who was accepted as a fair referee was fine with us. When George Mitchell left and we had to then spend the next nine years getting the agreement implemented, that required us to be inside a mediator. So I and the Irish government spent those nine years desperately trying to work to get the Good Friday implemented, which we finally did um, in 2007 when the Chuckle brothers took over. Now, Jonathan, I want to ask you why your very first decision as Chief of Staff, the newly elected Prime Minister... I know what this question is going to be. ...was to commission a special box embossed Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister. Why did you do that? Entirely so you and Tony could mock me uh, everywhere I went with it. So I tried it. I was actually Alex Allen, who was our uh, Principal Private Secretary to start with, who'd worked for John Major. And he said, you're not going to be Principal Private Secretary. And I have my little box of Principal Private Secretary. You should have one saying Chief of Staff. So I got this made and I took it on a first trip and Alistair and Tony teased me mercilessly. Uh, and so I had to was give it, it a beautiful sort of red box. It wasn't a red box. No, I'm not allowed to have a red box Darkly. because I wasn't a minister. So Darkly. it was a black box with lovely gold lettering saying Chief of Staff. And, and lead lined, a sort of big heavy thing. Uh, it was quite heavy. It wasn't yeah. lead lined, but it was. Uh, How much did it cost the taxpayer that little I have vanity? No idea because it was never used. It was stuck under my desk and probably still there somewhere. <laughs> give us, give us a sense of the difference between politicians and a chief of staff. What is it that makes? Because obviously our show is called The Rest of Politics. What is it that makes a great politician? What's the skill? that differentiates a great politician from a great civil servant? A great politician needs to have a vision of what they're trying to do. They need to be like a great general. They need to know where they're trying to get to, but not expect to be able to do it all themselves. Um, if you have a politician that doesn't have a vision, is simply managerial, it's not going to work. They're not going to get elected. They're not going to get re-elected. Uh, and they won't be able to govern very effectively. They also need, ideally, not to be able to try to micromanage. So the problem with Jimmy Carter, for example, when he was president, was he tried to micromanage everything, including the booking of the tennis court at the White, uh, the White House. And that doesn't work. So you need someone who can do that and then who can rely on someone else to make things happen. And the reason I invented the job of chief of staff here was exactly I saw this gap when my brother was in Downing Street. There was no one who brought together the political side, the media side, the foreign policy side all together. So the prime minister had to keep intervening. John Major had to keep intervening. And there was a competition between people on a Friday evening to get the last memo in the box for the prime minister to read, to be the one on top so people would stay very late on a friday evening by having the job of chief of staff we were able to make sure that didn't happen that the prime minister got one lot of advice that was averaged out between what people wanted within the building but your personality was incredibly important to that because you didn't you didn't ever feel it seemed to me that yours had to be the thing on the top of the pile it had to be you were working out what was going to suit his interest best in, as in terms of the flow of paper. And I do think, I mean, I honestly do think it's, it's a, one of the achievements of the Blair government is that you had some very, very powerful characters in there, lots of us, but very, very little of the sort of ego stuff that you read about and hear about with this lot the whole time. Yeah, there was no Marcia Forkender or anything of no. that from the, the Harold Wilson time. And I do think it's because people were complementary in terms of actually mm. doing very different sort of things. And I do notice that no one's abolished the job of Chief of Staff since, and they're never going to. Mm. You know, Mrs. Thatcher tried to introduce it right at the beginning in 79. She had Lord Wilson come in to be a Chief of Staff. The, the Civil Service assigned him a room on the third floor in the front, uh, and he wasn't allowed to read any confidential papers. And he gave up after three months very mm. sensibly. Because I had been in the Civil Service, I saw that coming and I think it was quite awkward for Robin Butler but I have to say he, he played very fairly by it in, mm. in, in the way that he handled it he did think I wanted to be the principal private secretary which I never wanted to be uh, but now the chief of staff will always be there and it will vary from prime minister to prime minister because prime ministers have different skills different needs but there'll always be a chief of staff yeah, well, Jonathan, thank you for giving us so much time. Thank you for putting up with... I think that's the first time I've seen Rory almost lose his temper. 
Uh, I, I was very impressed by how calm oh, it was. Yeah, that was so extraordinary. Well, just a test. It's one of those interrogation things. things. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It was a pleasure working with you for all these years. I'm sorry that I lost you the referendum in Colombia. I'm not going to take that and not sleep tonight because of that, <laughs> that, that veiled slight. Uh, but thanks for all your time. Thank you. I, I thought it was wonderful. And I also, I'm going to take a real lesson for how calm you were there. It was beautiful. It totally disarms me. I've, I've never had anybody respond to a, an angry outburst with such extraordinary calm. First interview uh, I did after I left government, because I never did any interviews in government, was with, the first interview I did was with Jeremy Paxman. And he decided he was going to really get me. So he started with a long, really tough, angry question about Iraq and saying, aren't you ashamed? And I said, no. And he didn't have a follow-up question. <laughs> he was completely sure he had to move on to another subject. So it's, but, I think, going, but, but I think part of the trick won't just be the word. It would have been the tone of voice you yeah, said exactly. it in. Yeah, yeah just yeah, very yeah, calmly. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Thank good. you. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Now, Rory, I think you... What's our motto for this podcast? We disagree agreeably. And I think you were getting perilously close to crossing into disagreeability yeah, as, there. As you said to me at breakfast this morning, I was out of order. <laughs> but you said it three times at breakfast. You clearly felt it very strongly. Well, I just, I just think it was, I don't know, something got right under your skin that was, it's I think. called the Iraq War. It yeah, gets under a lot of people's skin. It gets skins. under a lot of skin, but you didn't, you didn't react like that when we did our two-hour deep dive. Yeah, I, well, I, I know you much better. And I, I, so I give you more of the benefit than out. I, 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 no, I mean, I, I, you, you, you don't need me to tell you that if you're looking for a triggering moment, the Iraq war for many of us is the moment that drives us over the edge. Yeah. I, I've got to say, I think Jonathan is one of the most impressive people I've ever worked with. And I've worked with a lot of impressive people. And you saw some of it actually. I said right at the start, his utter unflappability. And his ability always to stay focused. And I think what he was doing is a technique I sometimes try to use in television interviews <laughs> with limited success at times. It's where, but this is what I tell other people to do when they're doing interviews. If somebody's getting angry or rude, don't listen to the tone, listen to the words. And that's what he was doing with you. So when he came straight back at you, he basically answered the point that you were making. And it's like the point you made about Jeremy Paxman. When Jeremy Paxman asked him to shave, he said no. He had a lovely, lovely answer, didn't he? I, I, I agree. His superpower is that preternatural calmness. But if you actually heard what he said to me, he said, he said, it's, it's fine, Rory. Um, I'm, I'm used to dealing with terrorists. I thought it was a great answer. <laughs> and he is used to dealing with terrorists we didn't really get into that too much I mean he does spend an awful lot of time now travelling the world talking to some pretty dangerous people well I, I think the one of the things that, that I would have liked to get in more is the sense of um, of the strangeness of that small group of you so mm. we've interviewed Dave Miliband mm. we've interviewed Tony Blair obviously you're on the show all the time um, uh, and Jonathan Powell is one of the missing elements in that small group of you the the others were angie hunter angie hunter sally morgan at various points andrew adonis was head of policy peter mandelson peter mandelson who i guess we have to interview right we should do definitely um but at some stage rory you're going to start putting in some guests rather than leaving it all to me yeah that's right well particularly <laughs> since uh, since it's a bit sensitive interviewing your friends particularly when <laughs> well, i get cross for them <laughs> well if you can well i think i think if you could so tell me who's your closest friend in politics get them in and i'll take them apart mind i've got to say you talk about disagreeing agreeably i had the most extraordinarily disagreeable disagreement with one of your former colleagues last night mr steve baker yeah well that was the other thing i got at breakfast i got told off about jonathan powell and then i got this extraordinary account of your argument with steve baker last night okay well onwards and upwards and just don't be so disagreeably disagreeing the next time rory thank you alistair
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.